Occasionally someone asks me if I uh, think that we're living in the last days, and uh, I have to answer with all honesty that I know that we are on the basis of uh, biblical authority. The Bible describes the last days not as some far-off period, but as the period that intervenes between the two comings of Christ. The last days are the inter-advent period, the period between his first coming and his second coming. Hebrews uh, 1 says, God who spoke through the prophets in various ways has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. And uh, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, describes that particular event, the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, as an occurrence on the last days, or in the last days. So, uh, yes, we are living in the last days. We have been since the time of the Apostles. Well, then the question uh, often comes, do you think the Lord's coming is soon? And again, I have to say, yes, it's near. Because every generation from uh, the time of Christ on has believed that his coming is imminent. As a matter of fact, the first of the writing prophets, Obadiah, said the day of the Lord is near. And it's clear that the apostles believed that the coming of Christ was near. And I was surprised some years ago to read some pamphlets in my father's library that were dated in the 30s, the 1930s, in which uh, the writers stated their belief that the Lord's coming would be in their generation. They felt that Hitler and Mussolini were the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they genuinely believed that the Lord was coming within their lifetime. This has been the consistent belief of Christians from the very beginning. The coming of the Lord is near. It's imminent. But uh, if that's so, and Christians throughout uh, the past 2,000 years have believed that to be the case, why is it that his coming is delayed? And furthermore, if his coming is delayed much longer, what sort of people ought we to be during this time while we wait for him to come back and set things right? Well, that's the concern of Peter in the third chapter of his little epistle, and I'd like to invite you to turn to that book. The section, the chapter, can be divided into two sections. The first is a discussion of this matter of delay and why he delays, and the consequent denial of his coming, and finally, our demeanor or our behavior in view of that delay. Peter says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your pure mind or your sincere mind by way of reminder. The uh, word that Peter uses for sincere mind here, or the word that's translated sincere mind, is the word that the Greek philosophers of Peter's day used for pure reason in contrast to emotion. The Greeks were as much concerned as we are about uh, living on the basis of truth rather than emotion. And Peter simply picks up this term and applies it to us as Christians. We ought to be living on the basis of truth, not emotion. I don't, I don't know about you, but I can't do much about my emotions. They wax and wane, and I'm up and I'm down. And I can't always predict how I'll feel tomorrow morning. But uh, the one thing that I do know for sure is that the truth, is it stands. I can count on on that. And that's what Peter calls us to do. 
He doesn't say stir up your emotions. He says stir up your mind. This is what Paul calls girding up the loins of your mind. Remembering the truth. And specifically, he says, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. In other words, what we ought to recall, the truth that we ought to remember is the truth in in Scripture, in both the Old and New Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament and the commands of our Lord and Savior spoken through the apostles. In other words, what the apostles wrote, Peter, James, John, Jude, the author of Hebrews and others, comes to us with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. That's why I've never liked red-letter New Testaments. The uh, purpose of the uh, printer, I'm sure, is to highlight the words of our Lord, but it gives, I think, the false impression that Jesus' words somehow are more worthwhile or have more authority than the words of the apostles. But that's not so. It's not so. What Paul says is basically what our Lord Jesus said. And if we submit to the Lordship of Christ, then we submit to the word of the apostles. That's Peter's point. And when we're in trouble, when things get tough, when we're down and out, the thing to do is to remember what Christ said through the prophets and apostles. Go back to the word. We've been saying that over and over again in our study of Second Peter. Go back to the word. That's the basis of our authority, not our emotions, not experience, not circumstances, not tradition, not what the pastor says, but the Word. That's our authority. And we need to check out everything anybody tells us on the basis of the Word. I had a friend of mine some years ago tell me that he woke up in the middle of the night and he saw Jesus standing at the foot of his bed. And Jesus spoke to him. And I said, well, what did he say? And he began to tell me what the Lord said, which um, happened to be contrary to what the Lord said in other places in Scripture. And I said, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, Paul warns us that that, uh, the devil himself appears as an angel of light. And we can't base our life on experiences like this, even if someone appears as an angel or who appears as Jesus Christ himself. If what he says does not correspond with what the apostles and the prophets have taught us, don't believe it. Our authority is is the word. Now, against this backdrop of the authority of the scripture, Peter wants his readers to know something in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, that's the period in which we live, not some far-off epoch, it's today, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? They deny the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is the content of their their scoffing, their cynicism. They, They say, The Lord's not coming back. God has never intervened in history. What makes you think the Lord is going to straighten things out? Now, basically what they're saying is that it all depends upon man. 
we, we can't count on the Lord to straighten things out. We have to set things right. We've gotten ourselves in this mess. Now we have to set it right. And it's a denial of God's intent to intervene in human history from time to time and in one great uh, final event where he once for all set the, sets things right. This is humanism. That's all it is. Humanism is nothing new. We Christians just discovered it a few years back, and, and everybody's writing about it. And uh, the word seems to be secular, atheistic humanism and other ways of describing it, but it's nothing new. It's as old as the garden. That's essentially what, what Satan, what the snake said to, to Eve. You don't need God. You don't need to count on Him for knowledge. You can do it all by yourself. And uh, Peter says we can expect throughout this period between the first and second comings of Christ to to hear people say, you don't need God to be a man or a woman. You can do it all by yourself. Now Peter rebuts that teaching in the verses that follow, beginning with verse 5. First, he gives them a little history lesson. Uh, Someone asked Oliver Cromwell what he would do to prepare his children for life, and he said, first, I would teach them a little history. And this is what Peter is doing. He's reminding them of one event, one exception in history, which invalidates their universal conclusion that God has never intervened in human history. He says if there's at least one time when God did act in history, and it was during the time of Noah. For when they maintained this, that is, since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. When they maintained this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. In other words, the word of God and water were the agents that uh, shaped the earth. The landmass emerged from water, and water was the agent that was used to shape the land. And uh, he says it was these uh, two agents that uh, resulted in creation, through which, the which is plural, the word and water, the world at that time was destroyed. So uh, he says, at least once in history, there was uh, an act, a divine act, by which God judged humanity. And it's coming again in verse 7. The present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The agent that he uses the second time will not be water. There was a promise to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by water. But the word would act again, and fire would be the agent that would bring about destruction. That's his first argument. The second is in verses 8 and following. And he says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, with God, time is relevant. Time is the great mystery. The Lord said it's not for us to know the times and the seasons. Time is a very elastic concept which we tend to make far too concrete. And this uh, near quotation from Psalm 90 is, uh, verifies that truth. But uh, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, 
but for all to come to repentance. That explains why God is waiting. Have you ever asked yourself why God doesn't judge the monstrous villains of history, the Idi Amin's and the Carol Chessman's and the mass murderers and the rapists and the drug pushers and, and people like that? Is it because he's impotent? Is, because he, is it because he doesn't care? No, no, it's because he does care. It's because he's waiting for people to come to repentance, even the, the mass murderers. The gruesome killers, the most gross people of the most gross sorts of immorality. He loves them, and he wants to draw them to himself, and so he's waiting. And uh, as a matter of fact, if God were to act in judgment on them, you see, he would have to act in judgment upon us. That's the point that Peter is making when he, he applies this truth to, to us. He says God is patient toward you. He doesn't say toward them, those guys that are doing all these terrible things, it's, it's you as well. Because all of us, if God acted in judgment, would feel the full force of that, of that judgment. As the young princess says in Lewis's Till We Have Faces, Are not the gods just? And the wise old queen says, Oh no, my dear, where would we be if they were? You see, God would judge us right across the board. He does not operate simply on the basis of justice. If he did, who of us would have a chance? He operates on the basis of justice and mercy. Why, uh, if God is just, why doesn't my foot wither when I speed through a school zone? Why doesn't the tip of my tongue uh, wither when I lash out in anger at someone? Or when I'm guilty of some... A terrible thought, some anger or resentment or bitterness, or I gossip about someone else. And you see, the, the, the reason the Lord doesn't act in judgment is because he's patient and he's waiting for people to come to him. So that's Peter's explanation for the delay. But, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The... Uh, the word that's translated roar actually means a, a whistling sound. It was used, used of arrows whistling through the air, a kind of ominous sound that precedes destruction. He says the time is coming when God will have his day. Man is having his day now, but, but God will act. He'll come like a thief unexpectedly, and the heavens will pass away with a, with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. The world is like a time bomb. It's ticking away. And uh, it's delayed. The fuse is delayed. But someday it's going to blow and the whole thing is going to go and everything is going to be burned up. Everything on the earth and all of its works. Do you realize that he's talking about the things that you and I spend most of our life trying to acquire, our houses, our cars, our educational and political pursuits, art, culture, our bank accounts, our investment programs, the property that we acquire, the praise and glory that we live for. Peter says... It's all going to burn up. And how many of us have 
ignored our families and destroyed our health and uh, distorted our priorities and lived our whole lives to acquire certain things that someday are going to burn up. That's Carolyn's favorite expression when something gets broken around our house. Well, it's just going to burn up someday anyway. And we ought to be good stewards and we ought to take care of what we have, but it's all going to burn up. The only thing that will make it through that fire is our character. As Johnny Erickson said, the only thing we're going to take into heaven with us is our character. I read last week a friend of mine was, uh, he picked up a hitchhiker. And as they were driving along, they were making conversation. And and, uh, the hitchhiker, in the course of his comments, said, My father died a millionaire. And my friend said, No, he didn't. And this young man said, Well, you didn't know my father. He said, No, I didn't, but I know that no one dies a millionaire. And this young man said, But he did. He died a millionaire. And Ray said, Well, where are his millions now? Who has them now? As Paul puts it in in 1 Timothy, we came into this world with nothing, and we go out with nothing except our character. That's all. We You can't take it with you. You leave it all behind, like the story of the man who was buried in his solid gold Cadillac, and someone in the funeral said, man, that's living, as they lowered him into the <laughs> ground. <clears throat> it's absurd. We don't take any of it with us. The only thing we take back is our character. And everything else that we've invested so much time and energy in, it's going to burn up. And sometimes the Lord gives us a little preview of what that's like. He lets our investments uh, get uh, wiped out. Our homes burn to the ground. We had a neighbor when we lived in, in California whose home burned to the ground almost and destroyed her priceless antiques, their cars, most of the things that they had worked for for their entire life. I have a friend back uh, back there, John Landreth, who's uh, who has terminal cancer. He's one of the best friends I've ever had. A uh, man about my age. And uh, through the kindness of the men in the Wednesday morning study, I was able to go back to California and spend a day with him this past week. And we went up into the mountains behind his home and we were walking we'd walk away and then we'd sit down and talk and John said you know over this past year I have lost everything his wife left him about a year ago his uh, children didn't understand the divorce and he almost lost them he lost his home he lost his cars because they won't permit him to drive anymore he lost his um, his job uh, he is undergoing chemotherapy, and as he, as he said, I'm losing my hair, and I'm going to look like you one of these days. <laughs> but then he quoted the words of Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but God, and on earth I desire nothing except thee. Well, what an impact that, uh, that had on me to realize. Here's a man who had his perspective straight. He has lost everything, but he's really lost nothing because he... He understands it's all going to burn up someday anyway. And he knows that what really matters is the pursuit of godliness. That's why Peter says in verse 11, Since all these things are to be destroyed, 
What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He does not tell us what we ought to do. Isn't that interesting? The emphasis is on our behavior, our demeanor, the sort of people that we ought to be. That's always the emphasis of Scripture. If we are what God calls us to be, then it doesn't really matter what we do. That will take care of itself. Unfortunately, the emphasis in evangelical Christianity seems to me to be on what we do these days. We need to be at the church building every time the doors open up. We need to serve on committees. We ought to go more. We ought to do more. We ought to give more. And our lives are filled with all kinds of shameful activity and and thoughts and hypocrisy. And we really miss the point of it all. Peter's emphasis is on what we ought to be. That's what Paul means when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, we keep our word, meekness, we're non-defensive, when we fail, we just admit it, thank God for his forgiveness and his grace, and go on, we don't try to cover up, we're honest, we have integrity, we're courageous. James says the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, without hypocrisy, easy to be entreated. That is, we don't blow up when people point out our, our faults. And the fruit of peace, he says, is sown by those who make peace. Wherever they go, they leave things more peaceful. They don't tear things up. They don't, they're not destructive. They're constructive wherever they go. Those are the marks of someone who really understands. And as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, We're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. That's what Peter means when he says, since all these things are to be destroyed, we ought to be a holy people. Looking forward to, that's uh, what we really look forward to, a good question to ask yourself periodically is, what are you looking forward to? What is it that consumes your thinking time? What do you anticipate about the future? Is it getting married? Nothing wrong with that. Or is it the next pay raise? Or the next business deal? Or the next car that we buy? Or the bigger and better home that we purchase? There's nothing wrong with those things. But if that's what we're focusing upon, we've missed the focus of Scripture. We're to look For the day that our Lord comes back, that's what's going to make the big difference. That's what's going to change everything. And you'll notice along with the looking, there is a hastening of the coming of the day of God. In other words, we have some part to play in the timing of that event. That's the consistent witness of Scripture in Acts 3. The prophets say the same thing in the Old Testament, that if we will behave ourselves, if we will be the kind of people that God wants us to be, then that will actually speed his coming. As the Lord said uh, in, the, uh, in the Olivet Discourse, this gospel will be proclaimed, this good news will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, and then the Lord will come, the end will come. There's apparently a finite number of people to be brought in, and when they have come to repentance, then the Lord will come back. And you and I have a part to play in that. In some sense, God has... Uh, He has 
limited himself to our action so we can cooperate. He could just sovereignly determine when that would occur, but we can cooperate with him in bringing about the day of the Lord. Therefore, he says in verse 14, in view of the part that we can play in bringing about the coming of the day of God, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him. That is, when he comes back in peace, spotless and blameless, quietly trusting him. Tranquility and purity ought to be the things that characterize us when the Lord comes back. Resting, trusting, counting on his pro- the processes he's ordained to bring about salvation, and characterized by purity of, of life, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. In other words, don't get nervous about the delay. Don't get frantic. Don't start running about trying to do something to change everything. First of all, count on him. He's at work. And concentrate on being a peaceful, godly, gracious person. And uh, he said this is, in effect, the same thing that the Apostle Paul teaches, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught, that is, those who have not been taught the Scriptures, and the unstable, those who, the word comes from the root for a foundation, those who have no foundation in the word distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, he says, Paul says the same thing, he's just harder to understand. And I'm going to have to take that up with Peter one of these days, because I think he's far more difficult than the Apostle Paul. But essentially what he's saying is that the Apostles agree. This is the approach that we ought to take. Therefore... You, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and you will hear much from unprincipled men, people who do not have their roots down in in the Word. Don't be carried away. Don't fall from your own steadfastness from the foundation laid by the apostles. It's the same word, same root that's translated unstable in verse 16. You have a foundation, they do not. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge form the foundation. That's uh, to change the uh, figure, that's the soil in which we grow. That's the atmosphere. We put our roots down into God and his grace and into his word. That's all we need. Peter uh, says in, in the beginning of his little letter that God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. And Paul, when he left the city of Ephesus for the last time, said to the elders, And now I commend you to God and to his, to his uh, word, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those that are sanctified. In other words, all you need is the God of the word and the word of God. That's all you need. You've got his word to live by, and you have his power that makes it possible to respond in obedience to Scripture, and you have his forgiveness when you fail. So that's all you need. So Peter says, let's get on with the business of growing. Let's grow up and stop spending our time and our energy building things that won't last. 
that someday are going to burn up. But let's concentrate on the things that really matter. Now, this passage raises a lot of questions in my mind. One is, what about uh, involvement in, in civic affairs and in politics and in education? Should we as Christians be involved in these things? Yes, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with involvement in, in any of these causes, just and good causes. But what Peter is saying is that the first priority is godly character. That's where we need to begin. And our tendency is to leap over that more difficult thing and to be involved in causes when our lives are not really straightened out in terms of God's will for us. The staff was talking this past week about some of the things that have, uh, that have occurred in history as a result of the, the uh, involvement of Christians in, in, uh, social, uh, in political and social projects. Uh, William Wilberforce is a good uh, illustration of this sort of thing. He was a member of the House of Commons in Great Britain in, at the beginning of the 19th century. And it was largely through Wilberforce and William Pitt and the Quakers that the slave trade was abolished in England. And uh, he had a tremendous effect upon the United States as well. In fact, most people trace the emancipation of slaves here in the 1850s back to what uh, to the influence of William Wilberforce. He had a tremendous influence on his times. But if you know anything about his life, he was a godly man. That's what made the difference. And then the question arises, what about evangelism? Aren't we supposed to give witness to what Christ has done? And Peter doesn't say anything about evangelism here. He just says, concentrate on growing in grace. Well, it's my belief that if we're growing in grace, evangelism takes care of itself. There may be some things that we need to learn, some methods that are helpful, but let's don't get the cart before the horse. Techniques of evangelism are of no value if, if our life is not right. Look, for example, in, back a few pages in 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. The, that's the term that Peter uses for those outside the church, non-Christians, unbelievers. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your beautiful deeds, is the word, transparently beautiful deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, on the day of inspection, when God comes back to visit the earth, there will be many there that will glorify him as a result of your good behavior. And then so there will be no doubt, he spells out what that behavior is in verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Do you know who the emperor was at that time? It was the notorious Nero, the most vile and wicked man to, to rule in the Roman Empire. And, and yet Peter says, submit to him, pay taxes to him, honor him, respect him, show him the respect and honor that's due him. He spells it out in verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor 
the king. Now, what good does it do to witness in our community to the grace of God when we're rebels in our hearts against the king, whoever he may be? That's Peter's point. We have nothing to say to the world if we're not obedient to this command. And then in verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. He's talking about employees today. Be submissive to your masters. Don't pilfer. Don't steal from the stamp drawer. Don't steal his time. What good does it do to witness to all of your fellow employees if you're stealing time from your employer when you do it? Or what good does it do if you're an employer to witness to the grace of God if you're harsh and unyielding and demanding and you're exploiting people in your employ and you're using them in order to aggrandize yourself or align your own pockets? See what he's saying? We have nothing to say unless we as employers or employees are good in our behavior. And then in chapter 3, in in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And down in verse 7, you husbands likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Notice he does not say weakest. The man is weaker also, is weak also. She's simply described here as the one more easily crushed by life and greater honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. What right do we have to talk to anybody about the grace of God if we're not being gracious to our wives and loving and attentive and sensitive to their needs and living with them in an understanding way? How can we say to the world we have the answer to your home when our own homes are, are in disarray? You see what Peter's saying? And he goes on, verse 8, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You see what Peter's saying? It's our good behavior that, that gives us a hearing in the world. And if our behavior is not beautiful, to use Peter's term, we really have nothing to say. But if it's right, we have a lot to say. Evangelism comes very easy. And Peter says there will be many that will glorify God in the day of visitation. This, then, is what we're to do while we wait. This is what we're to concentrate on. We're to live out our lives in tranquility and purity and rest in his sufficiency and grow in his grace while we wait for his coming. Let's pray. Father, how easily we succumb to the, to the big lie that meaning in life comes from the mere accumulation of things. We're, um, we hear it on every hand. Lord, every ad tells us that one more thing will make us happy. And we spend our lives in senseless, fruitless search for something to satisfy us. When you've already told us what really matters, thank you, Lord, for giving yourself to us and making it possible by your grace to be what you've called us to be. Thank you that we are already forgiven for all of our failures. 
and that you stand ready to equip us and empower us to live as we should live. We pray, Father, as your people in, in this city and in our community, that we'll be God's men and women, pursuing you with all of our heart. And uh, we ask that we may do so in a spirit of dependence and faith and belief and confidence, knowing that the one who has called us is faithful, and he will do it. We want to give ourselves to this pursuit until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.